This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. One byproduct of the streaming economy has been a massive jump in the amount of data available to musicians and labels. But what do we do with it? Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Zabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. Today, we hear another great panel from last summer's IndieCon, held in Adelaide, Australia, with some of the people involved most closely in analyzing music data. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. This is a panel I moderated with Amy Dietz, Henry Compton, Maya Janeska, Ben Godding, and James Lamone. So our topic today is streaming and data, which is uh, you know everybody's hottest new area of interest. I'm just going to start by giving you a little tiny piece of information that I thought was very interesting. The Nielsen Corporation, you guys may be familiar with them, they have been around for something like 93 years, and they collect data on many, many different things, including supermarket data. So, you know, they can tell you where to shelve your peanut butter for maximum efficiency. But for years in the music business, the only two pieces of data that we had that anyone would look at or used were sales figures and radio plays. And of course, not only with the advent of the internet, but really with with sort of the advent of the new streaming services and, and everything that's been happening in just the last few years, we now have an embarrassment of riches, right? <laughs> we almost have more data than we know what to do with. So I think that the interesting thing about data is that it's not useful unless you can use it, right? So it doesn't matter that we're swimming in data if we can't actually put that data to some kind of use. So today's panel is a bunch of people who live in the world of data, and hopefully they're going to be able to tell us the good uses that it can be put to in the music industry so that we can all learn something and go home and apply it. So I'd like everybody to start out by just going down the panel and uh, introduce yourself and tell, tell us where you work. Hi, everyone. I'm Maya. I'm the general manager of UNFD, which is an independent heavy music label based in Melbourne. I am uh, Ben from Cobalt Awol. Been marketing director there for five years. Cobalt offers an alternative to the traditional label model and uses data and analytics to kind of drive artists, whether it's Nick Cave on a global level or an artist from you know from their bedroom, as it were. Hi, I'm Amy Dietz. I am the GM of Ingroove's Music Group, which is a distribution company that focuses on services, rights management, and also data and analytics. I'm based in LA, and we're a global distribution company. Hey, I'm James Lyman. I'm the digital manager of ABC Music. We're an independent record label through the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and we work very closely with the broadcast side, but also have our own roster of artists. Good morning. My name's Henry Compton. I'm the director of Australia New Zealand for an American-based distribution company called The Orchard. We're a music and film distribution company, a YouTube multi-channel network, a whole bunch of label services in terms of neighbouring rights, sync, and obviously things like digital advertising, interactive marketing, and a huge part of our value proposition is our client-facing dashboard, which is very much analytics and data-driven to provide real-time insights to inform your business decisions. So I think this is very interesting because you know the Orchard and Ingrooves and certainly AWOL Cobalt have these new platforms, these new interfaces that are there to help artists figure out what to do with their business. But like, let's just say I'm an artist, right? And you're like, look at this fabulous dashboard that you have. And then I go to the dashboard and I go, and? How are people actually Education, that's what it's all about education, yeah. It's about do, you, do you send someone home with them to help them figure well, it you out? Talk, you talk them through it. I mean, there is a lot of data, but it is, it's all about being able to, because what managers and artists want to do is, is have, to know how it works. And if you can provide that education to be able to say, this is data, this is what's happening, you might be on this playlist, but it's all about being actionable as well, so that actually you've got to see the artists in their music is actually being you know, engaged by, the, by a consumer. But it's also taking around the platform. Yeah, so the, the amount of 
tutorials and stuff that I've done with clients, potential clients and artists has just been going into like 100 now, you know. But once they know, it's very easy. Our, our app is, is all about simple graphs and data. Like it's about making it easy for the artist so they can see all their hotspots around the world and, and off they go. So you guys launched that AWOL app in, in March, That's right? right, yeah. So since March, you say you've been doing hundreds of tutorials? Yeah, yeah, like, and this is globally, like with all, obviously the equivalents of me around the world are doing that, that sort of thing. But yeah, with all potential clients, as soon as we rolled it out, it's all about showing them how to maximize the data in there. But it's also very simple. Like it's, it's, I mean, it's pretty hard not to be able to, you know, work around it. But there's certain things which you can teach them to, you know, so they can provide better data for, you know, whatever track they've got coming up and when in social engagement, whatever it does. Or there's certain things in the back end which you can show them. But once you show them once, that's all you need. It's very simple. Yeah, education is empowerment, really, to sort of follow on from that, Ben. I mean, yeah, it's definitely like an educationary process in terms of getting people used to what they're looking at. But, I mean, we're processing something close to like 8 billion lines of data a month, but we try and crunch that down into a meaningful, easy-to-digest format that informs you about what's going on. And ultimately, like looking at any sort of analytics, it's all fairly subjective. So you, as long as you know what you're looking for and you familiarise yourself with what's, what's, what's in there and you notice the blips and you investigate them and then you tap me on the shoulder and we can do a deeper dive if necessary, it's really about empowering you to be informed to make your decisions around stuff and then working with us around how to best manage maximize that possibly from a retail marketing opportunity or some other sort of exposure opportunity that you want to work on. I think that's part of the key, which is it's a lot of it's about the partnership as well. It's about having the data that is in front of you. But a lot of the data for us and how Ingers uses it is around empowering our people as well, because they can see data from across a lot of different places. So the level of expertise that our people can get from that as well really helps us go back to the education piece of it, which is going back to labels and explaining, you might be seeing this for you, we've seen this before, and we believe that this is another actionable item you might be able to take because of that. And I think that that's kind of the next step of data. It's not just the platform of being able to look at things on a screen, it's what is an actionable item to do based on that information. And so there's a, there's a real key around crunching those numbers and then thinking about what those actionable items are. And that is where a lot of the partnerships come into play. Can you tell us what some of those actionable items would be? Like I, what? A lot of it is still really early days of like, what is that next thing that you do? But there's simple things like if you get added to a playlist, knowing that that happened quickly, and do you then post it on your socials as, as an example of a very minor thing that you might do? How do you work within the system. So that then watching what that made, if that makes a difference into creating another spike. So the next step of a marketing campaign that you might be able to take is, is where the, the focus is for really for us. And some of it's still really new. And, and unlocking that data, I think, is giving you guides into what your next market opportunity might be. For example, we had an artist recently, um, Byron Bay electronic outfit called Tora, who's just put out their album. And with one of their singles, I started to notice that the Spotify players weren't necessarily adding up to what we were sort of expecting from what was visible on the Spotify dashboard. And I looked into it, and sure enough, I, I drilled down and saw what country it was coming from, and then lo and behold, it was Deezer. And through that, Deezer was actually their number one store, even though they've had over 20 million streams on Spotify. At that point in time, it was their biggest store for that particular record. And within 24 hours, I'd spoken to our French office. We had artist messages translated, and they were already communicating in artist voice to that new market that they didn't realize they had before. And just to continue on the partnership loop around the technology side of things, I think you know it is a two-way loop. So when we get feedback from our clients, we give that to our product and tech teams, and that sort of goes in to inform the next iterations of our product because you know we're spending a lot of money every year on making this product work and making it work efficiently. So it's all about iterations and being able to be agile from the tech side as well as much being agile from the, the artist and label side. So Maya, what's an example in your world of running a label where you've used data to change something or to you know really inform? Form what you guys do? Our most recent example was we had like an 18 month sort of release plan for an artist and we had everything planned out, we had singles planned out and when it came to getting to the next stage of setting up the next singles we actually changed both single three and both single four just solely due to streaming data. We noticed that they were by far the most popular songs as compared to the singles that we when we first heard the album thought would be the ones that people would connect with which I think is really important but just in terms of like data where with Believe and we have really amazing analytics from them and one of the most 
interesting sort of things that we've been able to drill down on most recently is playlist ads on Spotify and Apple, but also being able to see the rate at which people might be skipping the song, how far they get into it. So actually being able to see whether a playlist ad is actually beneficial for us. While it can look great, we've noticed that there's playlists that have more followers that actually aren't working for us as much as playlists that might be a little bit smaller, which is interesting because I think when you're pitching for playlists, like the main thing you want to do is get them on the playlist with the most followers because, of course, that seems to make sense. But for us, we've found really, really interesting analytics in, I suppose we work in heavy music, which might be a little bit different. I think for a lot of indie labels, it's just about getting it on New Music Friday or that sort of equivalent. For us, there's more niche playlists. They still have upwards of like three to 400,000 followers, which is a lot, but we are finding that there's some more specific ones that are actually working better for us and our artists tend to be growing and there's a lot more engagement from those rather than the bigger playlists. That was Standing in the Way of Control by The Gossip. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a review. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What? This is a panel I moderated with Amy Dietz, Henry Compton, Maya Janeska, Ben Godding, and James Lamone. Let's talk for a second about skip data or, you know, the data of, of how far people get into a song. What's the current conversation about that? Because that's like a new field, right? Like, what, what can we take away from that at the moment? I think the skip rate, it's an interesting data point, but it's still a little bit... Spotify, from what we can see, doesn't really give us it as thoroughly as they could. They, that first 30 seconds is information that they don't necessarily share, and so that's some of the most important timing around that. And understanding how each one of the services actually what they call a skip and when they call it a skip makes it, that's one of the things that I think is difficult about data in general is actually understanding what they're giving back to you because what one service is giving you could be significantly different from what another service is. So there's a lot of time and effort that goes into kind of understanding what we're seeing. So there is things that you can see of like you start to see some patterns, but it's I keep saying I think, yeah, I think the benchmark is, is just to, it's not established yet, like, yeah. totally. But, you know, I saw one this morning, two different nights, one that was, you know, 2% skip rates, like, well, and then one which was 14. So, you know, I know obviously... And what does that mean, 2% versus 14%? Well, obviously the skip rate is, is, is very minimal, you know, on that front. So people, they're actually sticking in people's, you know, playlists, basically, and they're actually, you know, like, sticking with the song. 
but it's still to be that benchmark is still to be decided i think you know and we've got artists and managers asking about it because obviously it, the education for that is still out there as well in terms of people trying to understand that but i think that's only a matter of time yeah i i, I definitely agree it's a new benchmark i also feel a little bit like it's it's a bit about bit talking semantics in many ways when we talk about streaming platforms they're really the new radio and it's really the convergence of traditional sort of radio plugging, meeting with the fact that you've got editorial involvement, meaning with the fact that you can monetize it from the get-go. So I think rather than like a skip rate, I mean, that's like an obsessive manager trying to figure out how many times they might have been played on one particular radio show. You're sort of more so, I think what's more interesting is, is more broad statistics where you're actually tracking and tracing the consumer journey. So you've got like the passive listening sort of aspect where it's like a person walking into a record store to sort of like the, the active discovery where they've heard something in the record store and then they sort of go up to the counter and ask for it, to adding it to their collection where they're walking out of the store and they're taking home the piece of music that they've connected with. So it's really about tracking that consumer journey and really sort of finding about how your catalogue connects to that and maybe seeing how your catalogue performs overall and then sort of seeing how specific ISRCs or tracks are performing within that and actually being reactionary around that. I think the skip rate is really interesting, but I think it's like we're already getting like four or five lines of added data per stream around each stream that, that comes in. So this, these extra lines around stuff is, is I, that's I guess why I sort of say it's a bit, a bit semantics and it's back to what Amy says, like every service is different, you never quite know what, and I think to what Ben says, it's about a different benchmark. And again, I guess back to what I said before, it's about familiarising yourself with that data and really noticing the differences within that, the nuances within that, because it's your data and it's like only you know the data as well as you do because you know everything else that's going on in your campaigns and what sort of promoted posts you might be doing and how it might be impacting because of a touring route that might be going on. So while it's very interesting and very informative, I think you know it is still so early to sort of actually draw any judgement from what that skip rate, two seconds versus 14 seconds, I mean. I think that the playlist data is all about engagement as well. It might, exactly. might be great, you might be on New Music Friday, but is actually that track being saved? Is it going into someone's playlist? And, you know, I'm sure everyone's got them here, but, you know, we've got the data that will tell us, you know, whether that actually it is being engaged on, you know, actually that is being saved to someone's playlist. It's actually being actively, I guess, you know, in a way that's when you know they're being active about you and your artist, you know? So I think that's more important at the moment than anything is, yeah. is going beyond just being, yes, it's great to be pitched and it's great to be on the playlist, but is it actually, you know, being listened to, like, you know, rather than just a passive sort of thing being just being on a playlist? It becomes a story. It becomes yeah. the pieces, like one, yeah. the skip rate is one piece of a story added to yeah. how is the consumer actually interacting with it? Are they listening to it? You can look at patterns as far as, you can see it also in, in some of the genres of people are listening to, are they listening on playlists? Are they listening through their collection? What is that relationship between the two? So you kind of have to put the pieces together as opposed to having it just feel like one thing right. is going to tell you the story of what you should do next. It's really about kind of stitching them together and creating the story of like, how does that work for this? And can you see something from a higher level once you've dug that far down? Because it can get a little myopic if you're mm -hmm. looking at just one piece. So asking questions about how is this reacting compared to maybe something else that's similar. And to Maya's point around finding your artist in playlists that might not be working, I mean, that skip rate purely could be down to bad editorial. You know, it's in a playlist that isn't suited to that demographic that is actually subscribing to that playlist. So, you know, whoops, I suddenly went three past like, you know, Fresh FM or 106.9, I ended up on KCRW, finally, you know, but you've skipped through it all to get there, so. I think just in terms of using our label as an example, we find that when we drill down into the data that for some of our larger artists, it's actually coming from their artist profile as opposed to playlists. So we can see that engagement. So while playlist ads are great, we're still finding that the majority by far are still typing the artist name and just pressing play on the most recent release. So I guess that's probably something that's a little different rather than some other labels. Yeah, we've been doing the same. We've got, for example, some development artists where they're having huge success on streaming platforms and then we look into it and it's all coming from a big playlist and 90% of it is all on a playlist. So then if you take a step back and realise, well, there's the awareness marketing piece that we're missing out on because we're all reliant on just that one playlist but people aren't actually going in and searching for that artist or adding it to their collection. It's just found purely on that one playlist. So from our perspective, we're really taking a step back. Okay, how do we look at that data? And then how do we market to 
bring more awareness to that artist or push people to their, their platform instead. Totally, and I think the data is, not only is the data types different between services, but I think also the consumer is different on different services. So Apple and Spotify are really great with giving data, and, and we're really sort of great at processing that into a meaningful way, but you definitely notice a different consumer on the different services. Similar to what Maya's saying around the, the genre-specific stuff, I, I still definitely think that the stores have got a long way to go with figuring out niche markets like heavy music, for example, particularly where it's so micro-niche orientated. For example, some general observations that we, I sort of see across our different catalogues between Apple and, and Spotify, for example, is there's a lot more discovery going on on Spotify and there's a lot more sort of, I guess, an informed consumer on Apple Music in terms of people going straight to search and straight to ad collection. And certainly within niches, absolutely, to, to Maya's point, if you know your market and you know your demographic and it's an informed, engaged fan base, then definitely people are going straight to artist collection, adding, adding it straight to their listener collection and they know what they want to listen to. And that's why you guys know your product better than anybody to notice the nuances that are different to that so it's a new market and a new opportunity within the data. I find this fascinating. I, sometimes I feel sorry for us in the music business, like, like every single day, because you know, once upon a time and not that long ago, the only data point that you had was whether someone bought a record, right? And if they bought it, you were like, check that box, done. And, and, and like right? three months later, right? Yeah, you didn't have to then sit around going, did they listen to the whole album right. all the way through? What did they think of track nine? Maybe they only listened to half of track nine, right? And it's like now we have this crazy amount. So we're, we're like playing catch up with technology. And I love the idea of skip rates because half of the time I'm thinking in my head, it's probably someone screaming at their Alexa across the kitchen and it's just like glitching. You know what I mean? Because that's what happens in my house every day. There is like <laughs> abusive relationship with the echo in my house for sure. <laughs> I think there is a case that, that some people are writing music for playlists because they know that they're going to get a low skip rate and it goes on, it gets on and it builds and it builds and it goes into the chart and it's a suspicious cycle. And I think there is an element of that. And I think but that's no different than radio. Right, that's exactly I right. Mean, they, they're, they're, I mean, we've been living with this for a long time that this is, there, there's a little bit of playing towards that. Formulate. I think that there is, sorry to cut you off, no, there's, no. I, I think that there's some things that are we should be concerned about, but typically there's a backlash to that and that there's also still you can find anything that you want within those ecosystems and many of them are creating those genre playlists so if you're looking for epic music if you're looking for metal if you're looking for jazz you can find some of those playlists as well so it's about I the art about it, yeah i think it's the artists and, um, and team being a bit more creative about their marketing it's all available but you've got to drive your audience there and, and, and to build those you know audience figures numbers streams it makes it harder for some artists but it, the ability is there if you're clever about how you actually drive people to those playlists and, and to your, your songs on the platforms I definitely agree with you, Amy, that it's it's a bit like radio in many ways. I mean, we probably could have had the same question a few years ago, and I think you voiced a similar question at a, a, another conference we were at together about perhaps, you know, we're really lucky to have the national broadcaster in Triple J, but a whole lot of people writing music that's put just, just for that Triple J market and how that distills and dilutes the art form, you know? And I think, you know, the majority of people in this room and the majority of people in the independent sector while being mindful of the benefits that Triple J can give. It's like all about the art and the song and finding that audience and connecting to it. And to your point around the hypothetical you proposed around whether or not certain services may be looking at skip rates and, and informing that to, to make up playlist selections, quite possibly, I mean, we don't know what they're doing, you know, and that they're a commercial enterprise trying to figure out ways to add value and monetize their business and they probably look at whole things in a whole different way that, you know, I guess you get down to, I mean, does data, does everything else actually dilute the, the bottom line? And the bottom line is great art and great music talking to an audience. And it's, it's a very good question, but I mean, is it a, is it, is it a distractionary thing? And then, then how can we as, a, as an industry think about new ways to sort of help surface those genres that you, you mentioned? I think that's probably more important than worrying about what this or that service is doing about a skip rate. I think there's an opportunity there as well. I think there are a lot of genres that might get marginalised, but I think that just opens the door for more specific genre-based playlists and more engagement in that way. As someone that works in a very, very specific genre, I see that there's a lot of benefit to genre-specific playlists, and we get a lot of benefit out of them. They, they tend to be growing a lot, and I think for us personally, it comes from people's frustrations of not just being able to put on like a new music Friday and just being like, I'm going to hear something that I like. So they will go straight to kick-ass metal or metal domination or whatever playlist they want, and I think in a way it's positive, but I think there's definitely an opportunity there to grow more niche genres. And I think also in a way we've found that like 
things like Discover Weekly have really helped us a lot. Yeah. I know that anytime we've had an artist added to Triple J hit list playlists, they tend to pop into Discover Weekly not long after that, which I think is really great because obviously our artists are a lot heavier than most of the artists that are on the hit list. So I think that's actually a positive, but I can understand where you're coming from as well. This is where the data is actually helpful too when you, to what Portia has said multiple times that you bought the record, that's what you knew. And there's so many artists, and I think everyone on this panel probably has experiences of this, that it becomes about educating a lot of the services about these artists. They might be somewhat focused on what's happening on New Music Friday or Rap Caviar or things like that, but you know, we have regional Mexican artists that have 300 million streams, and it's about letting them know that that's happening and that the way that these services, in my opinion, actually succeed is to service everyone. If they only focus on the pop stuff, the overall services aren't going to yeah. really last either. And so if we can bring that data to them to show how, when you talk about how followers increase by going to some of those different genres, that's a very, very engaged fan that is going to stay on that platform for a long time when they find that place. It's up to us to tell the services why that's important, and I think the data can help do that. Yeah, we're, we're in a very similar situation to you. We work with very niche genres as well, and through the data that we look at, kids' music is one of our highest streamed genre on streaming services, and so we've shifted our focus towards how do we actually maximise that genre with the services that are obviously looking at the New Music Fridays and the Rap Caviars, but how do we represent our catalogue to the streaming services based on the data that we see and it comes from the classical genre as well, kids, country, alternative. And we've seen massive benefit in just focusing on, say, that kids genre, um, those services. I think we touched on radio before. I think now the difference is, is that there's like three stages to, the, to a record, to a track. Whereas before, radio is very front-loaded. It's, it's all about that impact date and it's, it's gone. It might last for a, a month or two. Now there's like three impact dates. There's uh, trying to get the, the, the initial New Music Friday or equivalent on that, that release. Then there's a genre-based approach maybe a few months later. And then there's a mood one which you want to look at. So it's like this longevity now of a track which can go for, you know, six months to a year, whatever it is. And it's all these different processes which you can now tap into, which is great because the life of the track now now it becomes long. We've got a track going to radio today in Australia, but it's actually, it's an American artist and it's had 60 million streams. It's doing 1.6 million streams a day. Literally only decided to go to radio today, but it's been going for like four or five months at this rate. And that's why it's like literally watching it and finding when the reaction is in Australia on Spotify and then to go. And now it's going to radio, but we've got all these streams that have built up before that. So you're, you're totally reversing the, the traditional radio strategy approach yeah, through your data. Absolutely. Yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess to, to, I mean, we work with Camp Cope and we've done a, they did a split single with Kayatana recently and there's this Badass Women playlist on Spotify which I think had about 10,000 followers when, it, when the track got added earlier in the year and it's now got about 60,000 followers and I think, you know, it's again down to timing and stuff like there's some fantastic initiatives going on globally about gender equality and, empower, and empowerment and I think, you know, that, that was the right playlist at the right time that's seeing a lot of traction and people are really actively engaged in it and it's really fascinating to see how different things influence different, different areas, you know, and a lot of stuff in this, in this world is, is, is timing and luck, you know, we all know that.
That was We Think She's a Nurse by Kinski. Want an even closer look at issues we talk about on the show? Our monthly newsletter will keep you informed about news, upcoming events, episodes, and more. You'll also have access to exclusive offers and behind-the-scenes looks. Sign up at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it? Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What? This is a panel I moderated with Amy Dietz, Henry Compton, Maya Janeska, Ben Godding, and James Lamone. I feel like this is a very difficult topic because all of it's happening so fast. And in there, there are certain cases in which we're all playing catch up, right? Exactly the example you gave of like, we were going to put out the single because we thought that that was the hot thing. I, you know, I really like that song off the record and I'm the boss. So I say that that's going to be the next single. Then I find out that actually everyone else likes this other one. So we're going to change in midstream. But the question is, you know, when you guys, most of you, I mean, two of you are labels, but the rest of you are working with labels. How do you advise labels where to put their marketing dollars when it's still so fluid? You know, because sometimes we're talking about a lot of money. Not all, not all the time, but sometimes. Now you're getting into a whole other different yeah. set of data. <laughs> I think the digital advertising question is probably a little bit beyond the panel in many ways because I guess the remarketing data and, and customer match capabilities that you have with a successful digital advertising campaign is probably working off completely different metrics to what we're talking about with streaming and analytics from a recorded music side of things. Noticing how they intertwine and those nuances is, is really great because you can obviously see things side by side and draw conclusions but again you know I think those those parameters are still yet to be defined and I don't think anyone's sort of quite come up with a crossover of different things there and the, you know there's different services with different sort of ad assets on sale there's different ways of reaching that market but I think ultimately you know it's come up a few times in the last couple of days when you're talking about that sort of sort of digital marketing spend you're talking about authenticity of the artist voice and really that authenticity is being able to speak, even though it might be a dark sponsored post that's popping up in somebody's feed because you like that other band that your friend liked. You know, that randomness of it and, and just serving something at the right time, it's, it's a whole other discussion, I think. Yeah, <laughs> now, wait, why is it a whole other discussion? Because it's different data. Like, I, I'm, I'm not trying to avoid it at all, but I just think that when you're talking about digital advertising, you're talking about totally different data sets that may be intertwined, but they're very, very different. But at a label, you still have to make a decision about whether you make a decision over the long term. It's different. I mean, there's smaller spend over a longer period. So when you're advising people to put money or or spend in marketing, it's steps. And it kind of was referring to about those three different stages of the track in terms of targeting on playlists. You're trying to match those those things. So instead of front loading it and on release or about release day, it's, you know, let's put a bit here, the streams are enough, let's connect now. Now it's gone onto another playlist, it's gone to, you know, four months down the line, okay, there's a bit more spend. So it's smaller spends, but over a longer, longer period. Right, and that's why I thought this yeah. was relevant to this yeah. conversation, because it's it's no longer like, you know, we, well, we threw this chunk of money and now it's gone. It's more like, let's try this for a day. Let's try this yeah. for, yeah. you know, a couple of days. Sure. Because that's how be, we do it. It needs to be sustained, I think, mm. and that's something that we're changing in our marketing spend and our campaigns. And it's we are sustaining it over a long period of time so you know I guess before all of this it was you would spend maybe like upwards of 60% of your entire budget in the pre-order period and then out now and you would just blast everyone and there would be street posters and covers and all sorts of things but we're sustaining it a lot longer now and I think another layer to add to it and to make it even more confusing is press you know having artists that People are searching for the name and listening to them. So there's a lot of data there that I don't have. And just myself as an example and like the people that I work with, we tend to find that we pay attention to press. And, you know, the other week there was a whole bunch of articles about Kendrick Lamar, for example. He was doing a bunch of pop-up stores, really cool stuff. And I was like, oh, wow, I haven't listened to Dan for a while. And then I put it on. I've been listening to it nonstop. So, you know, that's something that there's no data. I've just typed in Kendrick Lamar and I've put it on repeat and that's all I've done. So I think that's another layer to add to it that's really important that's not really part of any spend. So we're trying to space stuff out over 12 to 18 months as opposed to you know, a few years ago it would be in the first three months really and then the band would tour and you would just kind of rely on that to get a spike in sales or digital downloads. So for, for us now it's about sustaining the spend that we do have over a longer period of time which is a whole new conversation because 
you know, we're yet to see whether we, we need to quadruple the amount of money or whether what we have is actually enough because we're using different mediums now, so. But to your question, or to your point before about, you know, we used to know that we, we, we made a sale, you know, and that, that might have come through on a, on a statement that you saw three months afterwards that you had to build a pivot table around to figure out where and what stores and, and who was buying it. Similarly, I guess the evolution of getting a record out is kind of interesting and I think one of the more challenging areas that we all face is once, a, once that record is out, how do you resurface the tracks within that record? Because everything's about being fresh and being new and like, so you, you know, you try and maybe, you prolong the, the, the lead-in period and release a few, quite a number of singles up to the album release, but then when and how do you resurface that? And I think releasing that piece of content is just but one piece of content in what should be a really well thought out and planned content release strategy that is over a long period of time, that is done in a way that isn't obtrusive, that isn't sell, 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 that is true to the artist voice and label voice and is truly engaging and really unique bits of content that give insights to, to your artists' abilities, repertoire, personal lives, whatever it happens to be that, that finds the audience. I was just saying, artists can just release six singles in, in a space of a year if they want to, or, or six months not worry about an album or not even think about an album. They just might go, you know, we'll do a single now, two months later, okay, and then just keep building through a single strategy. And, and that might be it. They might not even need to lead to an album. Totally. We did that with the Ravenettes last year. We released a, a single every month and then it ended up being a record. And then I guess that was how we represented the, the tracks was that we had an album, pro album project at the end of it. There's been a definite shift in the way that we look at pre-orders. You know, there was that pre-order campaign. I think we used to work on different ones where it was, you know, months, months and months would roll out different instant grat tracks. And that, I think, has shifted completely over the last year or two years just to, you know, do people still pre-order or do they just want to stream or download straight away once it's out? Do they want to get, you know, drip by drip or do they want to listen to the full album? Do they just want a single? All these questions that keep coming up are, you know, about that pre-order period. We're not sure anymore if it's, you know, do we spend all that money in that period or do we just wait till it's out? There's pre-save. Pre-save is the pre-save, yeah. yeah. Which is actually did come from a cobalt idea from someone in the UK, some smart guy did it and they launched it with the Laura Marling, Nora Marling album and it was, that was when the pre-save idea came in and now it's being used and everyone's kind of... Yeah, we've been testing that out as well. Yeah. Are you seeing much impact from yeah, the pre-age pre your album? Absolutely, the yep. engagement on that is, is, is great and it's just building and building with each artist that does it. It doesn't work for everyone but it is a great tool to have and it, it replaces that pre-order part of the, what used to be in the, the instant graph. And I guess you've still got to have the call to action and... Exactly, you still crafted, have to be clever content content around I think it's still developing and people aren't exactly sure how it yeah, works. Well, <laughs> Hey, I've edited it, but I can't listen to it. Yeah, yeah, where is it? <laughs> Education. Exactly. Another interesting thing that's happening is there was just a report, and I can't remember if it was IFPI or what, but they were talking about listening habits and how they divided into four categories, deep catalog, catalog, recent, and brand new. And it was like 51% of people are listening to deep catalog. And that is another huge shift yeah. because... Yeah, you know, back in the day, what did we care about? I mean, maybe you did some catalog sales if you had, you know, a deep catalog, but really you were focused on the upcoming releases. Mm -hmm. And now you, there's a whole other life for your catalog at the streaming services that just wasn't there before. We had that with David Gray catalog. We had the David Gray catalog. We did, did a best of, and uh, the uh, guys in the UK developed a dynamic playlist, which was ever-changing depending on the popularity of the songs in his catalog. The spike was just phenomenal, like, you know, absolutely great. And then, yes, it calmed down, but his levels of streaming are now like that, whereas, you know, before they were like that. So his catalogue is now benefiting from that. That's been, yeah, been a big one for us as well in, in the classical world. Uh, we've got a huge catalogue of classical music, which we own the rights to. And repurposing that as well, that whole back catalogue, we released you know, a series of 100 bests, you know, 100 bests for value, just for streaming services. And they instantly became one of our highest streamed albums, just basically because we repurposed our back catalogue. Similarly, with kids' music as well, which I referred to before, just the, the back catalogue, say, for example, the Wiggles, people don't necessarily care that much about, or, you know, their children will love the old albums that don't need constant new releases. If they love Hot Potato, they just want to keep hearing that in the back catalogue as well. So we constantly look at the catalogues and try to figure out ways to repurpose it. Yeah, and I, I love the idea, Portia, of, of deep catalogue, you know, and, and being able to resurface that. And I really see that as a great opportunity, particularly for, for labels that have been around for quite a while. And I, I can only imagine the sort of work that you guys are doing at Kill Rockstars around that process and that education and connecting to that market and making people aware of it and all that sort of stuff. 
but I'm, I'm also interested in the fact that I guess we live in a world that's all about the immediate and, and the immediacy of something really, really fresh. And maybe what the classification of that deep catalogue is could be quite interesting because I think there's probably some, some data out there that sort of shows that deep catalogue might be anything released after the year 1999. And there's like 60 years of recorded music before that. So I think, you know, while, while services and, and artists and labels and, you know, di distributors are trying to find ways of surfacing that deeper catalogue, again, I think it gets, it's, it's back to education and consumer habits and, and really sort of trying to figure out ways, different ways of activating that whole history and culture of music that we've got still there that hopefully we're not losing touch with in the digital age, you know? That respect for culture and, and evolution of sound and music and, as an art form. It is interesting, though, when we talk about it because that we talk about how important it is for like the fresh, the new, the, everybody at once, that kind of instant gratification. But when then you go and look at the numbers with streaming, it's skewing hugely catalog. I mean, there's labels that 80% is coming from catalog. And so it's contradictory in a lot of ways because we're constantly talking about, and sometimes when you're talking to the services, they're talking about what is new and what is the thing that's happening right now. But in reality, the way that people are actually consuming is a ton of catalog. So, it, you know, again, that goes back to educating the, the services about using some of that data to show why it's important to be able to go back and resurface some of these things. I think we've done socials campaigns that are based purely on pushing people to catalogs. So when an artist has released a single, we've renounced an album, the album's not out for a while. It's like, hey, why don't you check out the other three albums or four albums or whatever? And they actually work really well. And we do see a spike in people saving the catalog and listening to it, which is really great. So that's just something we've been doing for the past maybe six months, just as a way to kind of get the streams up and get them... I guess in people's mind, but also in their recently played, so that when the album does drop, they'll get a notification or they'll know that it's there. Which I guess previously was like, it's on sale on iTunes for 9.99 or whatever. And I guess we would do sales and stuff physically, but I guess this is kind of that version of having a catalog sale. And that's something that we do about a month or two months um, in the lead up to an album. We will push people to their back catalog. And I guess to sort of extrapolate a little bit on the deeper catalogue idea, I think, you know, it's also important to sort of think about the global picture in things and what those data sets that we're sort of talking about here imply there in terms of where your audience might be and how to discover that and dominate that. And also, I guess, adjust your marketing approach where obviously, you know, when you're trying to get a band going and you're trying to get a, a track going and then maybe get some touring happening and all the rest of it and make a viable business out of things, you're obviously focusing very heavily in the home market. But equally at the same time, you shouldn't forget the markets that happen overseas. Like we work with Spinning Top Records outside of Australia and New Zealand. And I remember when Guns released their EP at the beginning of last year. And, um, you know, we had New Music Friday in Brazil, in Mexico, and a whole bunch of different markets. And this is like an unheard of band in their home market, let alone anywhere overseas. And it's like, well, there's, there's like hundreds of thousands of people that are listening to you. And again, you know, we're really lucky in the fact that we've got offices in over 30 markets. You know, I reached out to Silvia, my, my, my contemporary in, in Rio de Janeiro, and we had translations going and they were reaching out to that market and that fan base that was bigger than by times a hundredfold compared to what they were getting in their home market. So don't forget about international yeah. and, and don't think about anything, you know, just being localised. Absolutely. The, the global picture on some of our artists and Australian artists, we have uh, Felix Rebel from Cat Empire. It released, his solo album released here and it, it, was, it did well. It did okay, but the, the connection was in the States. He was on several playlists that were, you know, three, four million followers. And then suddenly he's now making money from a, a track which just sort of really connected in, in the US and in, in terms of playlists. And very modest here, but overseas was fantastic. And that's kind of now kind of earning, you know, him and us money going forward. And that's because he's like seven, eight, nine million streams now. Mm. So it, it really makes a difference. And you can do that because everything's just global and that's what's happened. Yeah, we're finding the same thing. Actually, the majority of our streams come from the US and Europe and not really Australia, even though we have a majority, the majority of our roster of Australian artists. But it also helps the people we have in artist management plan tours as well. So we have an artist that is getting a lot of streams in France. So instead of one show in France, it's two in Germany and stuff like that. So I think the best thing about all the analytics and everything that we get is that we are able to look at it more globally now as opposed to waiting months and months and months for a statement from wherever. And, uh, Mexico always appears as yeah. number two. Mexico, yes. 
Mexico. I mean, Mexico City's got a population that's bigger Same. than Australia. Yeah, yeah, the numbers there are absolutely um, massive. I was going to ask you, Maya, how, how's Latin America and South America for the Unified Catalogue? Really good. We've mm. actually just sent Northlane there. They'll be there in the next few days and they're doing Mexico, Argentina, Chile. And they're super excited about it. And that was actually a lot of that was based on the data that we had and just people getting in touch. But that's been something that's been growing for us in the first couple of years. And this is the first time we're sending a band there. So it's really exciting. That was The Arrival by Filthy Friends. You're listening to The Future of What. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. Buying merch from your favorite band is a great way to support them. But with so many bootleg and counterfeit products online, how do you know your money is going to the artists you love? Whether it's a t-shirt or a patch, your purchase should be properly licensed. Our new sponsor, Rockabilia, carries one of the largest selections of official music merchandise in the world. With over 500,000 products, Rockabilia has something for every music fan. Check out their store at rockabilia.com. You're listening to The Future of What? This is a panel I moderated with Amy Dietz, Henry Compton, Maya Janeska, Ben Godding, and James Lamone. I feel like this conversation is so interesting on so many different, like as a label, you know, you're thinking to yourself, what's the best use of, of my money? Because, you know, obviously the data that's provided that helps us figure out where to, our artists might tour most effectively is obvious. Like that's really, really helpful. But then when you get into all this other data, it's, it's really fascinating because you start to think, what kind of fans not only do we have, but do we want, right? And I just read a study not long ago about the different types of people, and apparently there's two types of people who listen to streaming. They're the people who just put it on during the day and just listen through, and those people tend to listen to what they like. You know, they, if like you're a Duran Duran fan, you're just putting on the Duran Duran channel or whatever. And then there's the people who just want something new. And the positive of the people who want something new is those are the people who are gonna listen to your new stuff. The negative is they're super fickle. They just want the next thing that's new. They're not gonna become your fan, right? So, I mean, this, this is an interesting conundrum. Did they really break it down just to two? <laughs> I know, I know, whatever. I'm not giving you the URL because obviously the study is flawed, but it was an interesting. What do you guys yeah. think about that? Yeah, I guess it's, you know, we, if it's like a lean forward person that actually goes in and actually searches for the artist or someone that, is, as you said, puts it on, we refer that to as a lean back person. So that is glide in, 
let Spotify do the work for them. And I guess that's where we see the real value in playlists and you know, pitching into the, the best place or getting our artists on those. But then I think I mentioned it before, it's where that awareness piece is missing. So if they're leaned back, just going into Spotify to play something new, how do we then get our releases to those people? And so that's the challenge I think that we're finding is how do we work our marketing dollars around pushing people to those those playlists or those artist profiles. Um, I don't know. And, and don't forget, obviously radio is still important to these. Like these as I said, some of the stuff we're doing is that it's just in the stream world at the moment, but the, the cash flow that you can then loan to an artist is then potentially for PR and radio plugging in certain markets after that. You know, suddenly you've got all these streams, but you can go bigger and wider, and you, you can go into the you know, UK, wherever it is that you want to, you know, that streams are happening, put some money in and actually take it to a broader, you know, channels basically, rather than just streaming. So you can move beyond just the streaming world and go into that more mainstream, providing, you know, whatever the track is. But, you know, you can do all this without, you can get all these streams without, you know, the traditional marketing and the PR, but what it does allow you is potentially money and investment into certain PR teams that could take it to the next level as well into mass market. So, you know, it's, that's why I'm saying it's a longer term plan. There's also a conundrum in playlisting, right? Because most people are marketing their new stuff to playlists, right? That's you, you, you try to get somebody to put your, your new song on a playlist, but what I've discovered is half the time they put on something else from you know, my catalog on a playlist. And then all of a sudden, it'll be that thing where you wake up one morning and something from five years ago has yeah. a zillion Yeah, that, that actually happened recently to a band that broke up two years ago and has done absolutely nothing since. Like, they haven't even updated their Facebook page for two years and one of their tracks went from maybe like a hundred thousand streams in about nine months to over two million and it was one playlist ad that did it but the engagement was so high on the song and it just keeps growing like constantly and that was kind of baffling at first but then really interesting when we drilled down but I guess that's something you wouldn't be aware would be happening prior to this. And that would never have happened before right? I mean that's that's long-term residual income for you as a label which is just phenomenal you know Uh, and who knows there might be a whole they might get back together again. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Maybe not. We, We had a similar situation not with the band that broke up but a new album out and then that single one of the singles um is a, a single sorry one of the tracks and just in the last month it's had seven hundred thousand streams and we're not focusing on that track at all and then we did some digging and realized it just got added to a, a playlist in the uk and that people the summer playlist and it was baffling we had no idea why it was just all of a sudden had seven hundred thousand streams in the last month and it's through just the investigation and yeah people and I think it's like a really unique situation, like back to receiving statements every three months being the sort of standard status quo and having like, oh, damn, why didn't I know that at the time and I would have done my marketing differently if I had those insights and all that sort of stuff. And it's about, I guess, moving from a really reactionary space into being much more proactive and real-time space. And it's allowing that free-form and free-flowing sort of authentic communication between you and your audience. And that's... It's so empowering at the, at the same time as being sort of so overwhelming that you've got to look at all these different data sets. So it's like get to know every bit of it around your socials, around you know, your streaming data, around you know, do simple things like verify your profiles and get your artist images up to date and all that sort of stuff. Really be on point for your brand so then everything else is like actually free-flowing and normal rather than sort of like we, we're all always waiting that master to be delivered and that video clip to be finished and all that sort of stuff and rushing it out. But, you know, being in the moment is, is a really powerful and empowering thing that I think is a huge change for the industry. You may have been joking about, you know, maybe this artist will get back together, but that actually happens. I mean, people do that. We had an artist I just talked to the other day who had one song on a Kill Rock Stars comp years ago, and her one of her other songs got synced in a show, and then it got downloaded, and then it got streamed a zillion times and now she has like a full career because of this one song that got a sync and now is you know people love her and i just was shocked to hear that i couldn't believe it how good is that sorry (laughs) how good is that that's so awesome it's amazing but she's doing it herself and i mean that's a nice thing she doesn't have a label so she can Mm -hmm. do it all herself which is kind of a, a cool thing for an artist to be able to do so yeah this this whole environment is so new and different and you know, I find it, I'm glad we're talking about it, but I still feel like we, we don't know everything. We can't. Not even scratching we, the surface. We're not giving you everything because we don't know everything. I mean, I think one of the things that's most important is whatever tool you're using, just understanding that it's being vetted on a regular basis, it's being iterated on a regular basis, you're asking questions, you're talking about what's coming next because 
what you did three months ago is not likely what you're going to be doing three months from now. And so all of those things are super important. And just you don't have to just look at the data because there's other things that you need to be doing, but really understanding what it is and working with people that can help you iterate on it and knowing that it's constantly changing is really one of the things that's just the key. You need to know that it's what you did before might not work and it's going to constantly change because we're, we're just discovering new things. So what is it actually telling us? One of the things on our app is that you can actually see the time of day that's the most popular time that is being listened to on that particular track. So going forward, you can actually then start to uh, plan your socials and what you're going to do around a new track, around what time of day you're actually going to release that to you know, the public because you know when your audience is engaged at a particular hour of day. And that's the sort of, you know, that's how much data you can get down to. Yeah, that's if something you want. we look at as well, yeah. is the time of day. It's, in, it's fascinating as well. And I keep referring back to classics and uh, kids, but we do have more music than that. But the classical music, late at night, people trying to get to sleep, and then the kids' music, it's 8 a.m. to 10 a.m., then there's a, a dip, and then, you know, there's the afternoon shift as well. So we are able to, you know, plan advertising literally around those times of days where people are act actively listening to it. It's fascinating to see that data now. I think in general it's while there's so much information and it is really exciting, it can also kind of make it a little more difficult to plan. I think what you used to have impact dates and it'd be like, it's going to radio, this is it, this is, we're kicking everything off. But, you know, we've had situations where we've had a single and we've been like, this is a song, it is going to be huge and then nothing happens for about four weeks sometimes and then all of a sudden it just takes off and then it stays and it's just growing and growing. We have a single that we released probably like nine months ago that just keeps growing and growing and growing but it took about four weeks of basically nothing which is kind of scary because we were so sure this song was awesome and then we thought for a while like maybe we're just crazy and this is a really bad song and no one else agrees with us. So there's just little things like that that I think it's it's making it easier to plan and like change plans and be a, a lot more flexible, but it is harder to keep doing those sort of old school campaigns where you plan for stuff. And especially if there's touring involved around a single, like an impact date, if it doesn't impact, I think that's a huge problem. So that's something I guess we'll all have to keep changing like, until. That goes back to, there's a lot of examples even in radio of things taking a long time. So I think you bring up a really interesting point of not reacting so much to the data that if you're not seeing something you change all of your plans all of the time because you know that it didn't happen right away i think that there's still a level of patience that we all need to be taking into consideration when we believe in something that's actually happening as well well thanks to the panel thank you very much and that's our show the music we played today was used by permission you heard the gossip kinski Filthy Friends, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.